Well, this morning, if you've got your Bibles, we are going to the Gospel of Luke, a new section in your Bible. Move the ribbons or the bookmarks from Nehemiah now to uh, Luke chapter 1 this morning. In the past, we've looked at the Gospels of Mark and John, if you've been with us. We did the Gospel of Mark in a pretty quick pace. We picked it up one year, uh, beginning with Christmas and ending with Easter, squeezing those 16 chapters of Mark into that brief season. And then we spent the better part of a year looking at the Gospel of John, not too long ago, if you've been with us. Uh, You're probably not supposed to have a favorite of the Gospel accounts, but I have to tell you, Luke is one of my favorite of the Gospel books. Uh, Luke is the longest of the four Gospel accounts. And, as we're going to talk about, it contains significant, significant amount of, of unique teachings and stories from the other Gospels. Luke is written in a fairly unique style, and it's a comprehensive story, and one that as we begin the book, what we get, even in the opening words of the Gospel itself, is a kind of introduction. So much of what we're doing this morning as we're going to be looking at the first four verses is to pick up on that purpose, that introduction that Luke himself gives us. Now, probably what you're thinking is, great, week one, we're accomplishing four verses of the longest gospel. I promise at some point to pick up the pace. We won't go four verses at a time. Uh, But I do want us to settle in. Luke is a long story, a comprehensive account of Christ, and one that I think is worth us taking our time with, and particularly in these first four verses, as Luke outlines why it is he set out to write this gospel. I think it's important for us to recognize those purposes. Those first four verses are his reason for not only why he took up this work, but why it deserves our attention and our careful study. So this morning, what I want to do is give you a little bit of a sense of who is Luke that writes this gospel, when do we think Luke is taking up the work, putting in the work of writing it, and why does he do it? Why, perhaps at the time with other gospels like Mark's already existing, what is it that Luke sets out to do in this unique work? Uh, Before we jump into reading the passage, a few observations about the book itself. First, We do know that Luke is the one credited with having written the Gospel of Luke. Uh, There's no attribution, you'll notice, if you begin the book itself. It doesn't begin, I, Luke, or I write to you, Luke, neither at the beginning or the end. But there's long been church tradition that Luke was the author. Some of the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Luke includes the title, The Gospel According to Luke. So that tradition goes very far back. And there's a little more evidence than just that. Uh, Some of you may not realize that Luke was originally a part of a two-volume act, that Luke wrote the book of Luke in combination with the book of Acts, that the two are meant to function as one work in two volumes. Luke, the story of Christ, and Acts, the story of the church who had picked up that mission or work from Christ. So if you go through the Gospel of Acts, one of the things you'll notice is there are a few occasions where it actually shifts to the pronoun we, The story goes from being told into the third person about Jesus, about Paul, about the church, to the author including himself in some of the events of Acts. And it seems to be that those events correspond to the time that we know that Luke was actually traveling with the Apostle Paul in those missionary journeys. Luke seems to have been an associate of Paul's, and so it makes sense that as we get into those stories, those times in church history where Luke was with Paul on those trips, we see that play out in Acts as he hints to the fact that the author was there for those particular events. Luke gets mentioned three times in the New Testament. Uh, All of them are by Paul, who he seems to be traveling with. So, for instance, we get sections like this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's in prison towards the end of his life, writing in the pastoral epistles. And he writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Chrysinus has gone to Galatia. 
Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is here with me. So according to 2 Timothy, Luke seems to have at least been there caring or helping, being alongside Paul in this time of imprisonment. We get something similar in the book of Philemon. We read in Philemon, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, I get the Hebrew names right, and then I get the Greek names wrong. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So again, we get in Philemon, Luke alongside Paul in this work. We know that Luke would have been traveling, have been participating, perhaps even doing some of the preaching or administrative work alongside of Paul in those missionary journeys. That's consistent enough. The mention of Luke throughout Paul's letters, the way in which those mentions fit the places where the pronoun shifts to we and Luke, where the author seems to have embedded himself in the story, then most scholars have concluded that it's credible that Luke is the one writing the gospel of Luke, which, if you know some biblical scholars, they're always willing to question the authorship of a book. So for the majority to agree, there's high confidence that Luke is the one, the companion of Paul, who's along for those missionary journeys, who takes up the work of writing this two-volume, the gospel of Luke and the story of Acts. There's a third place that Luke gets mentioned that tells us a little bit more about him. Only three places, 2 Timothy, Philemon, and then at the end of the book of Colossians, Colossians 4, where Luke is described as Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. It tells us a little bit more about who Luke would have been. Not only is he a doctor, a medical doctor, but he's a beloved physician. He seems to be somebody who's both respected and known to many of the churches that Paul is doing work with and traveling between. Many of the early church's early writers described Luke not just as being a physician, but as being a physician from the city of Antioch. Luke seems clearly, in addition to his medical degree, to be a highly educated writer. Some of the best Greek that we have in the New Testament comes from the Gospel of Luke as well as Acts. Luke also seems to have had some deep familiarity, as we'll see in the future of our study of Luke, with Jewish customs, and he's often found quoting from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Many think that there's significant evidence that Luke may have been a Jew living in what's called the diaspora, that he was a Jew living outside of the land of Israel, probably being born and raised in Antioch, where we know there was a large Jewish population during this time. That means he sits in a unique position. He's centrally located to have encountered Paul and the birth and spread of the missionary effort out of places like Antioch. He also, being a physician and growing up in that Hellenized city, would have been highly educated and understood Greek, which shows up well in his own writings. But as a Jew, he still understood the history and the scriptures of the Jewish people, which also appears in his writing. The second question, establishing that Luke wrote this book, why is it and when is it that Luke takes up this effort? If you look at Luke and Acts combined, Acts ends with Paul still in prison, having not yet been executed. Acts also does not include anything about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans in 70 AD. That was such a massive and pivotal event for Jews and Christians that it seems odd for Luke, who describes himself, as we'll see in a moment, as a serious historian, for him to have not included at the end of his history the fall, the destruction of Jerusalem, or the execution of Paul is odd. So most scholars believe Luke is probably writing before those events happened. He's writing this gospel in the Acts account before Paul's execution, before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
Paul, we believe, is executed in 64. So probably you have Luke writing his gospel sometime in the year 61 to 63 AD. Just to give you one more historical note of detail. Luke also seems to be aware of the gospel of Mark, which we may see in our study as he quotes from at least similar material or from Mark itself. Which means that Mark, having been written before Luke, must have written his gospel sometime in the late 50s for Luke to have known about it and been able to use it or reference it from 61 to 63. Why do I tell you all of this, drag you through? Some of you love this stuff. Some of you, I realize, start to glaze over. But I think it's an important point. One of the things you'll often hear about the Gospels is that they're much later writings, that they come up later in church history with all of the divinity of Christ being added on from future councils or developments. But the stories themselves, Luke's Gospel and Acts, as well as Mark's, They position themselves within 15, 20, maybe 30 years of Jesus's life and work, within close proximity. These stories, the way in which they've been handed to us, are told to us to be eyewitness accounts of those who participated and saw for themselves the teaching and the work of Jesus. This becomes important even in Luke's introduction, as he tells us, These are not later developments, later ideas, traditions that have been picked up about Jesus, but Luke sought out to record eyewitness testimony from the people who were still living just a few decades after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected. So it gives us a little framework for coming to the opening verses. If you've got your Bible, Luke chapter 1, we know a little bit about who, who Luke is, highly educated, a doctor, traveling with Paul, a little bit about when he wrote the book within just a few years after probably Mark, who's just a few years after Jesus's ministry itself. And so we get in the beginning verses of Luke's gospel, his why, who he is, when he wrote it, but why would he take up this work of writing another gospel? As I said, four verses this morning, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You notice in the next verse, in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, and the story begins. Those first four verses, Luke's own words to us for why this gospel account, why his work to write it, exists. I want to work through each of those statements because I think there's something to take away that prepares us for the gospel of Luke and how we should come to this work today from the way Luke himself presents it and gives it to us. In so much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he writes, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. You notice from the very beginning, as I said, Luke is trying to tell us that this gospel is going to be based on eyewitnesses, on those who had heard the teaching of Jesus and who had been teaching that same teaching for some number of years. Luke sets out to compile all of that evidence into a clear narrative, an orderly narrative of the life and teaching of Jesus. This genre that Luke is writing in as a historian is one that's fairly common to us from the first century world. The second century Roman historian Lucian says that when writing a history, you should write it as important, essential, personal, and useful. 
And Luke seems to be doing something like that, including himself in the story, telling us that it's both important and essential, having been passed down, and that it will itself be important to us as it was to this Theophilus we will talk about in a moment. We also have some other examples from history of these kinds of introductions and how a history is being presented. Some of you are familiar with the great writer Josephus, who was one of the great Jewish historians writing around the same time, this first century period. Josephus writes this at the beginning of his great volume, his History of the Jews. Those who undertake to write histories do not, I perceive, take the trouble on one and the same account, but for many reasons, and those such as are very different from one another. For some of them apply to themselves to this part of learning to show their skill in composition, and that they may therein acquire a reputation for speaking finely. Josephus says some people write histories to impress you with their rhetoric, impress you with their writing skills, to create a literary volume. He goes on to say that others of them who are writing histories in order to gratify those that happen to be concerned in them, and on that account have spread no pe- spared no pains, but rather go beyond their own abilities in the performance. Other people write histories to flatter the people that the histories are about. You see that even in our own day. People like to recount history and current events to make one person look good, a kind of uh, reason that they write. But he goes on to say that there are still other reasons. But others are who, of necessity and by force, driven to write history because they are concerned in the facts and so cannot excuse themselves from committing them to writing for the advantage of posterity. Nay, they are not a few who are induced to draw their historical facts out of darkness and into light and to produce them for the benefits of the public on account of the great importance of these facts themselves. Josephus will go on to say that was his purpose for history that there are unknown things in darkness that he would draw out, not to flatter, not to prop himself up, but because these things were worth knowing. Luke gives us something similar to that in the beginning. It's interesting that he gives an introduction much like Josephus's introduction, a little bit shorter. Josephus's work is much longer than Luke acts. But Luke is doing something like writers of his own day, trying to position this gospel as history, as significant and important to be paid attention to so that things could be learned that are at risk of being lost. That takes us into the second statement of Luke. It seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke tells us that this gospel story we're about to read is going to be orderly, that he has been following these things for some period of time, and now he has sought to gather them together into a logical and clear way of understanding the teaching. When it comes to the four gospel writers, Matthew was himself an eyewitness and certainly wrote out of his own eyewitness experience. Mark was said to be giving us the account of Peter, who was, of course, an eyewitness to the events. John is an eyewitness, certainly drawing out of his own memories of the events. But Luke, in a unique way, says that he has set out to draw eyewitness accounts from as wide and as broad as all of those who were participants and observer of the events. Luke is making an orderly collection of all of those accounts that are contributing to the story of Jesus. This orderly, researched doctor's approach is part of what makes Luke's gospel unique. If you take Luke and Acts together, The two volumes account for 28% of the New Testament writing. 
You have Luke, perhaps you didn't realize, contributing over one-fourth of the entire New Testament in this researched, orderly account that he's providing. Luke, in his gospel, also contains 30% unique material that you won't find in the other gospel accounts. And certainly that has to do with the fact that he is researching and pulling in sources from many eyewitnesses. I'm hoping this is beginning to give you a little bit of a picture of how serious Luke is about the gospel that he's writing. How serious he is about the factuality, the research, and the eyewitness accounts that go into it. You also read in that sentence that Luke is writing this gospel account for someone that he names Theophilus, for the most excellent Theophilus. There's a couple of ways of thinking about what might be happening with this name. The first is Theophilus means loved of God or dear of God. So it's possible that this is a kind of rhetorical device that he's using to say that this gospel has been written for anyone who considers themselves to be loved by God or a part of God's people. That's possible. Uh, It's not a common rhetorical advice. We don't see that in other histories. And Theophilus is a pretty common name in the Greek world. So a reader might not naturally recognize this, but it is possible. The second option that I think is more credible is that Theophilus is probably a benefactor to Luke, who is helping fund this massive research project that Luke has taken on. Even today, writers or historians who set out for multiple years to study will sometimes get an endowment or will sometimes get a large advance from a publisher to help fund the work itself of the research and the writing. And this is not a book that Luke is trying to sell. So you could imagine to be able to invest the kind of time it would take, somebody is probably helping support Luke in that work. Luke is traveling and gathering these eyewitness accounts from all over, researching, collecting stories, putting it together. This shows up in the writing of Luke and Acts itself. Luke mentions 130 unique geographical places by name. In the book of Acts, Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine Mediterranean islands, He also lists 95 people by name, 62 of which are not named elsewhere in the New Testament. The sense you get is that Luke is doing his homework. He's taking this research and the facts seriously. And if he is traveling to many of these places to meet these people and encounter, hear their stories, then surely somebody is helping fund that work and that project, which to me is just biblical evidence that every writer deserves to get paid for the writing they're doing, or... (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice if we all had a rich, a rich benefactor who would come along and fund whatever interesting project you have in mind? It's biblical after all, see? The final phrase, this book is being written for Theophilus, perhaps as that benefactor, but there's also a specific purpose so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. Perhaps this is the most important line of that introductory verses that sets us up for the Gospel of Luke. This has been a lot of background material to understand how we're coming to this book. But I think there's something here that's really important for us to hear as we set out on what would be a long study of this orderly account of these eyewitness encounters with Jesus. In Greek, the final sentence has a different word order. Often in Greek, the word order will be different for the sake of emphasis, and that seems to be what's happening here. In the Greek, the final word is the word certainty. The sentence moves towards that final conclusion, this final word of the entire introduction being the certainty that this gospel will give Theophilus for all of the things that he has been taught. 
This gospel, with all of its travel and research and eyewitnesses, with all of Luke's effort to give it that literary technique, that orderly account, it's being gathered so that Theophilus and any who would take up the work of reading it, in the end, might find themselves with a greater certainty, a greater confidence, a firmness for the truth, the teachings, the words, the gospel of Jesus that they've heard before. The goal of this gospel is not just so that you can learn the truth, the true and false facts about Jesus. You might just know who Jesus is. The goal of this gospel, according to Luke, is that you might have greater confidence in Jesus and what he taught. I want to suggest to you the word conviction, which I think could be a fair interpretation of this word. That we read this gospel, we study this gospel, so that we might have greater conviction about the gospel that we've received. So that we might find in us a greater conviction for who Jesus is and for what Jesus has taught and done. For what this story of Jesus and the spread of the gospel through the church means for us as writers too. Conviction about that truth. Keeping conviction is actually something that can be a challenge. Many of us here, I imagine, are believers. Some of us having been believers over long decades If we were honest, conviction is not something that you acquire or put on a shelf and always find existing there as you left it. Conviction is something that in one moment floods you and the next moment seems to wane and be hard to find at all. There's all sorts of reasons that that conviction can begin to slip. The world makes it challenging to keep up that faith, constantly pestering and taking shots at the credibility of Jesus and scripture and faith itself. Doubts slip in, sure, that's part of it. But time itself seems to have an effect on eroding the conviction that we have about faith. That Jesus, if we're not careful, can move from that character of deep conviction and calling to that assumption somewhere there deep within what we believe, but no longer that piercing light, that cutting conviction of his word to us. The words of Jesus, the actions of Jesus... They lose something of their edge in our life. And though held true as a belief, something of that conviction over time is always at risk of atrophying in our faith and in our thinking. Even here, notice that Luke assumes that Theophilus has already heard about Jesus. He doesn't say that I'm writing this so that you might know who Jesus is or learn who Jesus is or discover what Jesus taught. He specifically says, I'm writing you this so that you can have certainty about those things you have been taught. That there will be a deeper level of conviction about Jesus. The Jesus who you've encountered and known, but through life and years tends to lose that edge of firmness or certainty. That this gospel, this story will reignite within you that firmness, that conviction of faith. Certainly there's a word in that introduction for us as we take up this work of looking at Luke's gospel as well. Could this gospel be for us that? A deepening of our conviction about who Jesus is. A deepening of our conviction about what Jesus has done. A deepening of our conviction about what Jesus taught. And how he is both Lord and King and Savior in this day, in this moment, as well as those before. Last year there was a Gallup survey that came out about the credibility of the biblical stories and the way in which they've been changing in the years around us. According to Gallup's study, Americans' confidence in the Bible's veracity is at an all-time low. 
Gallup reported this Wednesday, the article was published, that just 20% professing a belief that the religious book is the literal word of God. For the first time, more Americans are scripture doubters than are believers. Gallup noted that 29% of those surveyed said the Bible is compromised of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded merely by men. Gallup said 49% of those responding took the view that the Bible is inspired by God, but that not all of the book is to be taken literally. 20% figure for those who say that the view of the Bible as the literal expression of God's thoughts is down 4% from 2017, and the last time Gallup surveyed Americans on that question, it's at half what it was during the 1980s. What they show, what they recognize is a massive change in the way that we think about the firmness, the certainty, the credibility, the conviction of the Word of God. That this is the world around us every day in which we go about reading our Bibles and thinking about Jesus and trying to follow and live out his teaching. That fewer and fewer people believe it's credible. Fewer and fewer people believe it's the Word of God. Fewer and fewer people carry a conviction that it matters and that it has bearings on how we live and what we believe. We may know all the stories already about Jesus. There's always an opportunity for us to encounter him again and by his spirit to find that conviction, that sureness, that certainty of faith established again. Without conviction, without an orderly and clear image of Jesus that Luke offers us, aren't we always at risk of reworking Jesus into merely what we want him to be? Jesus always on our side, Jesus always naturally thinking like we think, agreeing with us, and having the same moral conclusions we have. We may believe in Jesus, but the Jesus that's functioning in our life without careful attention just becomes more and more what we want him to be. And so we need, like Theophilus, even all the way back, a clear, convicting image of Jesus with the power to once again change who we are and how we see the world around us. I want to present to you that as Luke's goal for the gospel, to give us that kind of image of Jesus again, that though we have heard the stories before and know him, might give us a new certainty, a new conviction, a new depth of faith. And that's our goal as we take up the work of reading Luke together. Number one, a clear view of Jesus. Can we see him with clearer eyes than we have before? Number two, humility to hear his words again, as if they're spoken with a new freshness and clarity. A clear view of Jesus, humility to hear his words again. And number three, firmness and conviction about who he is, what he taught, and what it means for us in this day that we live in. That word Luke uses for certainty, that I've offered you the word conviction for, is actually pretty rare in the Bible. Luke uses it twice, once in the beginning of his gospel, and the second time he uses it in a technical way in the stories of Acts to describe prison doors that have been secured, they're firm. But it gets used one other time by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul was warning the Thessalonians about a kind of false security that was invading the world, that was keeping them from recognizing the importance of the moment that was before them. And so Paul writes... People are saying there is peace and security, certainty. That's the other place this word shows up. The world around is saying peace and security. And then suddenly destruction will come upon them. 
as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. What Paul recognizes is that this idea of security and conviction is one that's really important. That there is around us a constant kind of false conviction, a false security, a false sense of having what we need and life going according to our plans. That can lead us into a kind of darkness, an inability to recognize the day we're in, the time we're in, the warnings that Christ has offered us. And so Luke tells us, he has done all of his hard work, traveling and gathering and researching and writing so that we might not fall prey to that false security, but we might have a certainty about who Jesus truly is and what he said. It's a good place for us to pause and pray for our time in Luke. Let us not have any false sense of security or conviction in the day that we live in. Help us to truly understand the things that we encounter in Scripture. Give us deeper convictions about who Jesus is and why it matters in our own day. And let it prepare us well to live in this world as his true disciples, that we too might have certainty about the things that we've been taught. Can we make that our prayer this morning and we'll worship together? Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be coming to a new place of your revelation. That we have these words before us that your servants, those eyewitnesses to what you have done, have passed on to us. That generations of believers before us have studied and taken seriously. And we pray that your word would have in the coming weeks its effect on us as it's had on so many of those before us, that we wouldn't get lulled into living in a kind of false security of this day, that our own possessions, wealth, that our own achievements, that our own comfort wouldn't lull us into mere belief, but that God, as we encounter your story and your words again, your acts on our behalf, that there would, by the power of your spirit, be a newness to the convictions we have that your word would be alive again within us, that your presence would be real and before us, that we would sense the significance of the time that we live in and that we would encounter you active and at work in this moment, that by your teachings and the words, you would stir our hearts to greater faith and greater conviction, that we would live as people not merely passing through this world, but people representing you as salt and light convinced and believing with faith, true faith, in the midst of these days. So we just pray for our hearts and our minds, the weeks that are come, that your spirit would again, as you have so faithfully done in services past, speak to us, challenge us, prepare our hearts, where we need a hard word, speak it in discipline, where we've lost something of your grace and mercy, give it to us again, where we need a reminder of your power and your wisdom, your kingdom values. God, put them before us. And as we encounter your gospel again, change us, mature us, deepen our faith to be more your disciples, that we in this day may have real certainty and real hope, real strength and boldness and conviction, not by our own strength or mere hope, but because of who you are, because of this encounter again with your grace and your mercy, your lordship over all things. Let us hear that call to be your disciples and to follow you in our day. 
and to see again this good news that you've given us at the cost of your own life. Jesus, our hope is in you. Our certainty, our strength, our conviction is in you. By your spirit, make that conviction even greater still. We worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. always grateful when we get a chance to start a new book of the Bible together. Um, part of what I've found over the years as we've done this so many times is that God has a way of always putting us in the right part of Scripture at the right time. And I know several of you sort of sense that even through Ezra and Nehemiah, who would have thought we would need a word from Nehemiah. But as we were going through it, um, week after week, it just felt like this was what God had for us. And I really believe that that's what this study in Luke is going to be. I was thinking about... Um, If Luke does write this book just before the death of Paul, just before the fall of Jerusalem, then he's writing the Theophilus who's a believer, but who's about to go through the discouragement of the persecution that will happen both with Paul, but on in spreading to the church, the destruction of the temple and the expulsion of Christians and Jews out of Jerusalem, a season of real struggle in those early days of the church, and that if this word is being written, even before Luke or Theophilus knew those things were coming, There was something by the Spirit at work that would lead Luke to write a book to say to Theophilus so that your faith can be certain, so that your conviction can be deep. Certainly, God's Spirit was preparing even Theophilus and the readers for those things to come. And I can't help, I don't think it takes any amount of prophecy to say if it takes us a year and a half to do this book, we could see some turbulent times in the next year and a half. We could see some challenges, some questions, some uncertainty. And so perhaps this book is God's way too of saying, In the midst of a hard world, a challenging world, a world with questions and struggles and pain, um, there's something here to deepen our conviction. That song we just sang spoke of an anchor, a foundation of faith. It's something in coming back to Christ again in this gospel might anchor us, might give us a foundation in our own day with whatever's to come, that we might be certain, that we might be people of boldness and conviction, not because we've drummed it up in ourselves, but because by his gospel and his spirit, he's given us himself and his word in a deeper way for our own time. That's my prayer. And I think what God has before us in this study, not just that we might learn some facts and history, I hope we do, but in the end, like Theophilus, we might find our view, our understanding of Christ, our conviction of faith deeper and more certain and more steadfast. Can we go with that as a closing prayer today? Heavenly Father, We humble ourselves and we entrust ourselves over to you for your spirit to do its work in the days ahead. God, there's so much uncertainty in our nation and in this world. As you said, there might be rumors of war, confusion, delusion that would be spreading and false teaching. And God, we pray that in the weeks ahead, your spirit would speak again to reveal you and your gospel in such a way that our faith might be strengthened that this gospel would again be to us like an anchor, like a foundation that we could build our lives on and that we would encounter here your faithfulness and your grace and your mercy again in such a way that it would give us hope and steadfastness in the midst of our own day. That we, like so many of those first believers, would persevere through even challenges. And God, if it should be persecution itself, still believing still trusting and still holding on by faith to the hope that we have before us by your death and resurrection. So through this gospel, do that work again in us too. Give us a faith that is sure, a faith that is certain, a faith of conviction again. 
for your glory and for faithfulness and serving and following you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'd leave you with those words, the closing benediction from the letter to the Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought you again from, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of that eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's good to worship with you again this Sunday.